There are perhaps two activities that are universal to all of humanity. Whether young or old, everyone seems to be involved in these activities. Uh, We love to invest time and energy and uh, effort into thinking about new ways to win at these two games. Uh, You could think of these activities as games or or merely activities, but as you think about what, what could it be that unites humanity in activity? Um, what is it that unites us all in our endeavor? The first, whoa, that was really loud. The first is making excuses, and the second is playing the blame game. You and I are not innocent in this. We love to make excuses. Whether you're a toddler or you are a teen or you are an elder, we love to come up with new ways to excuse ourselves, our looks, the way we're thinking. We love also not only to make excuses, but but often those excuses kind of turn into playing that blame game. We, We love to blame other things. Or perhaps the way we look. It was the weather outside that caused my hair to be crazy this morning. It was my wife who made me do it. It was my husband. It was it it was my kids. It was it was this. It was that. It's always something other than us that causes the problems in our life. And King David was no different. King David was a master at making excuses. In fact, David learned perhaps from the, from the master of excuse makers. And that was King Saul. King Saul always had an excuse for everything. Whether it was Samuel not showing up on time, uh, and so he had to fulfill the role of priest or well, whether it was the, the medium at Endor who messed up in her conjuring of Samuel from the dead. But you see, like Saul and like David, when we are confronted with our sin, we often default to that position of excuse making, blaming circumstances and situations or others that led us to that point. My hope this morning is by looking at Psalm 51, we will be encouraged into true repentance. That making excuses, that blaming others, that that, that just being sorry, just, just having this sort of worldly grief is not true and biblical repentance. So we're going to consider in God's Word this morning in Psalm 51. But before we get to Psalm 51... We kind of have to have the backstory to this psalm. We, we have to kind of understand, you know, what precipitated, what caused David to have to write Psalm 51. And, uh, and I thought it would be helpful to kind of, <coughs> excuse me, go back and look <coughs> at this, uh, this circumstance, the historical situation. So let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel <coughs> chapter 12. That's in the Old Testament. So if you're not familiar with where that is at, that's okay. You're, you're not less than this morning. It's on page 263 if you're looking at an ESV or a Pew Bible. Um, 2 Samuel 263. 
Second Samuel chapter 12. As you're turning there, as you're frustrated with your pastor, oh, I thought we were in Psalm 51. Now I'm turning to 2 Samuel. What is the deal? Well, I think it's important that we settle and, and are reminded about what happened here uh, that, that caused David to write this song that we're going to consider in our, in our time together this morning. Just a reminder, David was the king of Israel. David was the king when he wrote this psalm that we're going to uh, learn about this morning. David is also described in God's word as the man after God's own heart. David was the pinnacle of all the kings, the, the king by which everyone pointed in the Old Testament, King David. And then later, King David's greater son, Jesus. David wasn't just an ordinary king. He was the promised king who would finally deliver God's people from war and set them in a peaceful time. But David had a problem. His problem was his own heart. And so let's get into the story <clears throat> in just a moment. Just got a little backstory before we read 2 Samuel. David's king, and they're at war. Israelites are going and, and fighting. And while they're fighting, David is, is back home. David isn't out with his troops leading God's people like he should have been. Um, he was at home getting himself into trouble. And one afternoon, David goes out and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath naked. And he's attracted to her. And it leads into this sordid affair whereby David uh, has an affair with Bathsheba. And then, trying to cover up his sin, he has Bathsheba's husband executed. So not only is Bathsheba and David involved in adultery, but also in conspiracy and murder. This is the man after God's own heart. And let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord said to Nathan, sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. The one was rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought, excuse me. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of its morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, that man, what he has done, deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it were, if this were too little a thing, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Nevertheless, because you, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. It is this background to Psalm 51 which precipitates this psalm. And I hope that's in your mind as you think about how David responds to his sin being exposed. One thing that makes David different perhaps than us is that we go through life and no one knows about our sin. We don't have prophets showing up to our doors and exposing our sin. But how do you and I lead a life of true repentance. That's what we're going to consider today in God's Word. So turn back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I don't hear pages turning, so I'm going to just begin reading. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me from hyssop, with hyssop, and I shall be cleansed. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David outlines for us in this psalm four ways or four steps to true repentance. 
four steps that you and I can take in our lives to bring about genuine and true repentance. First, we must begin by grounding ourselves in, the, in God's grace. David begins the psalm by grounding himself in the character of God. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. David begins the psalm by, 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 by saying, God, have mercy on me. Notice he says, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. David appeals to God's character. God, God's character as a loving God, a, a God who is abundant or a God who is continually loving. This is that wonderful love, the Hasid love of the Old Testament, the, the covenant love uh, that God has for his people. And David appeals to that love that God has, and, and he says, that is my foundation, that is my standing. David has in his mind, is, uh, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David is appealing to this God, the God who is steadfast in love, the God who is abundant in mercy, limitless in mercy. David recognizes who God is. David doesn't go to God and say, hey, uh, you know, I made a mistake. I messed up. You know, I'm really good most of the time. This was just kind of a bad day. Made a mistake. No, he doesn't do that. He goes to God and he, and he appeals to God his grace, to his mercy. And he appeals to God for pardon and purification. He doesn't go to God. Re repentance is not going to God and simply asking him to forget about our sin. David appeals for a pardon and for purification. Not only for forgiveness, but also for cleansing. He says, wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Repentance, brothers and sisters, begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. <laughs> doesn't begin with us sort of sorting out in our hearts and mind uh, what we have that we can kind of offer up to God. Um, sort of conjuring a list in our minds. You know, okay, I really screwed up here. I really made a really mess of my life here. But, but you know, there's some of these good things over here in this column, some positive things over here. We sort of conjure up all these positives and we take them to God. Hey, God, look at these good things we've done. You know, we're not completely idiots. It's not what David does, though. David begins with clarifying in his mind who God is. Brothers and sisters, we begin by grounding ourselves in the grace of God. But David doesn't stop there. He vocalizes next getting real with sin. The second step in repentance is getting real about your sin. Uh, being honest about sin. In verses 3 through 6, David is clear and honest about his sin. Uh, he, he's, he doesn't try to whitewash it. He doesn't try to like spruce it up a little bit. You know, kind of not make it seem so bad. Oh, friends, that's what we love to do with our sin. Uh, we love to sin, but perhaps even more, we love to make sin look good. At least to ourselves, we try to talk ourselves into thinking that sin is actually good, when rather it's death. David goes on 
It gets real. One of the first things you and I have to do when we get real with our sin is we have to own our sin. We have to own it. David owns his sin here. David doesn't say it was someone else's sin. He says it was his sin. Notice what he says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions. That word transgression there is rebellion. I know my rebellious ways. I know what I did. I know it. And it's ever before me, he says. It's right in front of my face. I I, I can't miss it. It's mine. It looks like me. Like Like a parent knows a child, or we perhaps know children by their parents, so we are known by our sin. We know our sin. We know it. It's ours. We, we claim it as our own. We don't, we don't try to push it away. In Psalm 22, the psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Confessing sin is acknowledging that it is our sin and agreeing with God that it's sin. When we approach the sin of our lives, we have to recognize that it's ours and that it's sin. You know, oftentimes we play that game where we try to think that sin isn't really sin. You know, it's, it's not that bad. We play the old game that Satan played. Did God really say I can't have that? Did God really say that's, that's going to lead to my death? I don't think he really meant it when he said it. No, we must begin by owning our sin, that it's ours. It's no one else's. It's our sin and we are guilty because of it. It's our sin that, that makes us guilty before God, not someone else's sin, not our parents' sins, not our, our children's sins, not our neighbors' sins. It's our sin that has condemned us eternally before God. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. How are you with owning your sin. We must begin by owning it, that it's ours, by claiming it. I know I have sinned, it's mine. But secondly, we must not make excuses. Don't make excuses for your sin. Uh, David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David not only owns his sin, but he also doesn't make an excuse about it. He doesn't go to God and say, hey God, you know, uh, you don't understand, you know, there was this naked woman in front of me. I mean, I just couldn't help myself. I mean, she was just there. Uh, you know, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out there uh, in the afternoon taking a bath. It was her fault. It, you know, if you'd have just given me a better wife, then, you know, maybe I wouldn't have went after her. David could have made many excuses for his sin, but none of them would have measured up to anything. When Nathan went to David, David uh, exposed in a sin. Hey, remember what he said. He says, I have sinned. He, he doesn't try to get around it. He, he goes and says, I've sinned against the Lord. It's, it's against the Lord that we sin. So, so not only do we not make excuses, but we recognize that sin is an affront to God. When we sin against our neighbor, against our friend and family, whoever we're sinning against, ultimately we sin against God. Now how can you say that? If someone hurts you, they're, they're not hurting God. Well, yes, in that we are created by God and therefore are accountable to Him. 
We answer ultimately to God for the way we live our lives. We don't answer to our parents. We don't, our kids don't answer to us. We don't, we don't ultimately answer to our bosses at work or, or to some other authority. The ultimate authority we answer to is to God. And therefore, when we rebel, we are ultimately rebelling against God. Friends, we love to justify our actions. We love to qualify everything we do. But you don't understand, you know, I was running late for work, and so by, by, because I was running late, I, you know, ran that person off the road. Uh, because I slept in, you don't understand, I slept. You know, we, we make excuses after excuses for God and for our sin. But what we need is humility. We need to be like the prodigal son. When he came to himself and he went to his father, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the kind of humble spirit when we, wreck, when we don't make excuses for sin. We don't then, thirdly, play the blame game. In verses 4 through 6, David doesn't play the blame game. First, he doesn't blame God. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says, look, God, you are innocent of this. You are blameless in your judgment of me. Uh, you know, what we often try to do is try to blame God. Try to point the finger at God because of the circumstance of our life. We, we blame him for that. But David says, no, God, you are innocent. And friends, as much as we love to talk about God's love, we must settle in on God's justice. God is a just God. That the condemnation that He gives to us because of our sin is just. It's true. God hasn't been paid off. It is accurate. Secondly, we don't, we don't blame others. David, David doesn't try to blame others here. He says, look, look. He's not trying to blame his mom. He's not trying to blame his dad. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David recognizes that from birth we are sinful. Uh, that translation sounds a little weird. Uh, perhaps the, the Holman Christian gets it a little clear. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Uh, that's how the Holman Christian translates that. In essence, what David is saying is, is that, Look, no one taught me how to sin. No one sat me down one day and showed me how to commit adultery or, or how to murder. David says, I was born that way. I was born a wicked and broken man who wanted nothing but to see your glory defamed and you dethroned. And friends, that is true not only of David, but of us. This is what theologians call a universal human depravity. It's what we read about in our statement of faith, that all of us are, are needful of salvation, that we don't grow up to be sinners, rather we are born sinners. And David said it's from conception that we have been sinful and guilty before God. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all sinful before God. No one is innocent. No one is guiltless. 
Calvin writes, David here refers to original sin with the view of aggravating his guilt, acknowledging that he had not contracted this or that sin for the first time that he sinned for the first time lately, but had been born into the world with the seed of every iniquity. I love what Calvin says there. He says, look, it's not a disease he contracted. It was some sort of illness he picked up on the streets. You know, that's what we like to do, isn't it? Uh, It's the company you're running with is why your kids are so messed up. Uh, we, we blame society. We, you know, it's the world we live in. You know, it, it's, it's this world is perverse and evil and wicked, and so that's why we're we, we're we no, no 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 no. We are the evil ones. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are not clean and cleared, but rather we are sinful. David also here doesn't blame his education. In verse 6 he says, look, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David says, look, I'm not going to blame what I know. Uh, you know, a lot of times we make excuses like I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know that was sin. I didn't know that was rebellion. David says, no, you know better. I know better. God has spoken in his, through his heart. That's what we considered last week in God's word. Through general revelation, God has revealed himself so that we are without excuse. No one stands before God in eternity and says, I didn't know that you were real. I didn't know that that was sin. No, we know it is written on our hearts. So repentance begins by grounding ourselves in the grace of God and then getting real about our sin, owning our sin, saying, saying it's ours, not trying to make excuses and blaming others in our lives. The third step we see in this psalm is that we go to God. Go to God. Now David outlines for us in verses uh, 7 through 12, really three things to go to God in request. There's sort of three big requests that he makes that sort of summarizes this section and his approach to God. So first, you know, in verses 3 through 6, he's really just talking about himself and about his sin, about how good God is. And then verses 7 through 12, he, he turns and he begins to ask God some things. He gets to kind of blow up a little bit and develop what he said in verse 2. So first, David goes to God for pardon and for the removal of sin. David goes and he goes and he says, God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be cleansed. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Blot out all of my iniquities. David seeks for pardon. David seeks for God to pardon his sin, to remove his sin, to cleanse him from sin. And the, and the language David uses here is symbolic of both the Passover and of the Levitical cleansing of the, the temple and, and the other uh, elements of worship and preparing the temple for sacrifice. So what David is appealing to here is the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was a which points us to Christ. And so we might read this and think, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with us. We don't walk around with little little brushes brushing ourselves with with water. We're uh, putting blood on doorposts. No, but but those things pointed to something much greater than them. They pointed to the death of God's Son. Where his blood washes us white as snow. His blood cleanses us 
from sin. His blood removes us so that John can say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we not only go to God for pardon for the removal of sin, which is where often we stop in our process of, of justification. We often just kind of stop there. We kind of think, okay, I'm forgiven. Everything's cool. But God is so glorious. And the gospel is so much sweeter than forgiveness. Because the gospel isn't only about being pardoned. The gospel is also about restoration. It's about renewal. And ultimately about a restored relationship with God. And so secondly, David in this section goes to God for restoration, for a restored relationship with him. He says, hide your face from my sins. Hide your face from my sins. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Well, what David's concern in this psalm is that his sin has now separated him from God. Friends, that's what the Bible teaches us. That's what sin does. It, it separates us from God. It, it creates a, a great chasm by which we can no longer be with God. God is holy and, and we are not. And so God can't be chilling and hanging out with unholy people. And so the promise of the gospel is that not only is our sin removed, but also our relationship with Him is restored. And just think for a moment. Uh, you know, we, when people hurt us, we get to the point where we can forgive them. But you know what we do oftentimes in that? Is we'll forgive them, but we won't allow them back into our lives. We, we, we might accept their apology. We might work towards just forgiving them. And, but we are reluctant to allow them back into our lives lest we be hurt again. Lest they hurt us again. And, but, but God isn't like that. God isn't a God who, who, who does that. He, he not only forgives us, and then He says, come on home. Come on back. You're welcome. Oh, I know last week you were, you were trying to tear down my kingdom. You were trying to take my throne. But this week, because of my grace and my Son, you are free. And you are my Son. You are welcome at my table. You don't eat with the dogs anymore. You can come and sit with me. David also goes to God for renewal of his heart. David goes and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David runs to God and says, Look, I want to be forgiven, but I, want to be, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to just keep coming back to you with the same problem every week. I want to get done with this problem. I want, I want a new heart. I want, a, I want a spirit that's steadfast, not a spirit that's fickle and, and, and falls away. God, will you give that to me? Will you sanctify me is what David is asking here. David is crying out to God. Brother and sister, God is not in the business of making a better you, but a new you. That's what he's out He's not, he's not interested in, in getting you all cleaned up and looking pretty. No, no, he, he's all about renewing you and creating a greater and most glorious one created after the image of Jesus Christ. The, the, the uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says this, and I think it's so helpful. Uh, 
this saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being uh, by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detesting of it and self-abhorrence, praying for pardon and strength of grace. Listen to this. With a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. That is, that repentance has a goal in mind. Uh, the goal of sanctification. Uh, that is, when we repent of our sins, it's not only about being pardoned, about being forgiven, but about being renewed, about being changed into the image of Christ. So we begin repentance by grounding ourselves in the grace of God, by getting real with our sin, by, by, by not making excuses and blaming others, but owning it as our own, then we go to God for pardon and for purification. Fourth, and finally, give God the credit. Give God the credit. David concludes this psalm by giving God the glory for this work that he has done. He gives God the praise and the glory by telling others about God's grace. That's what he says in verse 13. God, will, will you do this? If you do this, this is what, what I'm going to do in response to your grace. I'm going to go start teaching people. I'm going to open up a little teaching class and I'm going to teach people about your grace. I'm going to lead others to this kind of repentance. Uh, because I have experienced joy and gladness, I want to tell others of this joy and gladness. That, that's why that little beggars telling other beggars where to find bread is so helpful. It's so true. Oh, yes, it's out, uh, maybe outused, but it's true. R repentance leads us to not shy away from telling others of their need to repent. It is foolish to think that, that we would experience the grace of God and not tell others about it. It would be just as foolish if we were drowning and were rescued and not told others how they also could be rescued. Now David says clearly here that I will go, <coughs> excuse me, and teach transgressors, uh, fellow rebels, your ways. And brothers and sisters, we need to be about that business in our lives, telling others. We need some Nathans in our congregation who will stand up and not be afraid of the king and tell the king that he is in sin. We need some John the Baptist who are not afraid to stand up to wicked King Herod and say, you are in sin. And what we do in the church by allowing brothers and sisters to remain in unrepentant sin is only to cause a greater cancer to spread and a greater disease to take root and ultimately kill a congregation. Look, if you want to get in the business of, of closing churches, you let sin continue in your heart and the hearts of your brothers and sisters in Christ. I guarantee you as a congregation, if we, if we allow sin, unrepentant sin to continue, we might as well just close the doors now. Because it's guaranteed that if sin persists 
It will root out the light. It will destroy the light and the darkness will win. So we've got to get busy and tell others about God's grace. Secondly, David sings about God's grace. He doesn't only tell others. Boy, he can't help but tell and sing. One author wrote, great mercies call for great songs. Friends, it is wonderful to gather with you every week and to sing God's praises. To sing that before the throne of God above, that is my sure foundation. To, to sing, come you sinners, poor and needy. To sing together, I will glory in my Redeemer. Oh, my Redeemer. He could be your Redeemer too today. But when we sing congregationally, what we are doing is we are encouraging one another. You know, oftentimes there's this misconception, this misnomer that worship is just about you and God. This sort of vertical, you're going to just think about God. And that's true. That's, that's part of worship. Oh, but worship is such, such, such wider than that. It's about actually singing to one another. This is why we are commanded, I want you to be clear here for my non-singers in the, in the congregation, uh, we are commanded by God in the scriptures to sing. And he doesn't qualify that, uh, you know, those who can sing. Look, I'm up here every week singing. I know I can't sing. It's okay. It's all right. If this terrible voice, you have to hear it every week. Listen, I want to hear your Voice And the reason is, is because you encourage me to faithfulness. You encourage me to God's grace. You are telling me that I need a Savior. And that's why we sing. You know, we sing off key. We sing to God's glory and His praises. One of the most incredible things over the last few weeks in the midst of the tragedy of these floods has been the, the harrowing stories of rescue. I'm sure maybe you've caught some of them, the, the stories of, of little little ladies being rescued by, you know, in, in the middle of the night by these, these sort of uh, noble men. They come in, they, and they're, they're just so sweet, and, and they, they talk about how good God is and how gracious He is. The language David here uses the language of rescuer. He says, deliver me or rescue me, and I'm going to sing about it. I have a, a really good... African-American brother, pastor who preaches, and, and he obviously talks about the, uh, the can't help you. That, that is a sense of when you've been gripped by God's grace, you just like can't help but like sing and shout and get excited. You know, it's like, man, when you recognize the fact that you are wicked and broken and rebellious and all you deserve is death, but God has given you life and grace, all you want to do is get up and kind of get excited about it and say, you know what, I want to get excited and sing about your praises. Oh, friends, trust me, my children are annoyed by my singing at home, but, but my heart is stirred by God's grace and His wonder that He saved a sinner like me. Sing to God about His grace. Finally, don't get over God's grace. Don't get over God's grace. David says, O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare Your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a humble spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David says, God, if you do this, you can't shut me up. 
And one of the saddest things is when I see brothers and sisters with mouths closed when God has saved them from so much. David says, I can't help but talk about it. I can't help but declare your praises. I, there's nothing I can do about it. The word there, open, open is a word caused to flow like a river. Open my mouth. This is going to flow out of my mouth. All it's going to be is about your grace. And my foundation, he says, is your grace alone. It will not be self-righteousness. I'm not going to look to my sacrifice, but rather to trust in your promises. David closes this with a peculiar two verses. It's strange what David says here. Not what you would expect perhaps David to say. He says, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You read that and you think, David, this is weird. That's not really applicable to me. Uh, this is kind of strange stuff there. Uh, sacrifice and animals. Um, um, that's like so Old Testament. But you have to realize something here. David knows the promise of God that one of his sons will ascend the throne and will lead Israel to victory over her enemies. And David recognizes that his sin has jeopardized that promise. That perhaps because of David's foolishness, because of his selfishness, that God will forsake his promise to Israel. But David's confidence is that God will do good to Zion, uh, that is to Jerusalem. That, that if Jerusalem is safe, then the sacrifices continue. And if Jerusalem stays, then, then the greater king comes. Do you understand that in the Old Testament, if the Israelites don't make it out of their sin, if they don't, if God doesn't bring them back from their outcasts and from their rebellious ways, that, that there's no Jesus, there's no temple for Jesus to grow up in, no temple for him to go to. But these bulls and sacrifices here in the Old Testament point to a greater sacrifice. And what is laid in a foundation here is that something is dying in the place of another. We saw that in David's repentance in 2 Samuel. Did you hear it? David had done the two things that, by God's word, deserved execution. He had an affair, and he murdered someone. Both crimes were punishable by stoning, by death. David deserved to die for his sin. But Nathan says, God has covered your sins. God has, has covered your sins. God has forgiven your sin and covered them. Because something else died in your place. And it was a son. It was a son that died. It was David's son that died. 
Did you see it? David's son died because David was a sinner. And this is what the author of Hebrews says, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of devout person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify it for the purification of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, this psalm points us to Jesus so clearly. Our only hope of forgiveness and renewal and restoration in repentance is the death of David's greater son. Our only foundation isn't us cleaning our lives up. It isn't blaming others or making excuses for sin, but dealing with our sins in Christ. I invite you this morning to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. God of mercy and grace, be merciful to us, sinners. God, we recognize that we are sinful, broken men and women. We are rebels who deserve your just and loving and gracious judgment. But you've had mercy on us, saved us. And Father, I pray that my brother or sister that's here this morning, who is afraid to confess sin, who is fearful, can be grounded in your grace this morning and know without a doubt that there is no longer judgment. If he or she will just turn from sin and embrace Christ and trust in his sacrifice, there is no condemnation but only life and victory. Father, help us to flee sin, to not harbor it in our hearts, but to confess freely before your throne with our sure foundation in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.